BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I need more power, computing power that is. This has been a major focus for numerical weather prediction in hopes of creating more accurate and detailed prediction of Earth's systems. The highly touted European model has long been one of the leaders in numerical weather prediction performance. As the European Center for Medium Range Weather Forecast prepares to integrate the next generation of supercomputers, model efficiency may suffer as more data is computed at higher resolutions. Current processing capabilities and codes are not adapted to meet these standards. Today's guest is Dr. Peter Bauer, and he'll outline how they're working with meteorological modelers, computer scientists, and hardware providers to make sure the Euro model is ready for the upgrade. Peter, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Marshall. Yeah, this is really an honor. One of the great things about doing this podcast is I often get to reconnect with former colleagues and uh, Peter Bauer and I actually overlapped for some time. I can't, I believe it was the late nineties uh, at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Uh, I was a scientist there at Goddard and, and I believe Peter was visiting us from Europe. Let me just give some of your credentials, Peter, before we get into the discussion. Peter is the deputy director of the research, uh, of the research department and head of the scalability program at ECMWF. Now you're going to hear that acronym quite a bit. That's for the European Center for Medium Range Weather Forecast. For those of you that use the Euro model, it's their model. Uh, he's held several other positions, including a, a guest scientist at NASA. Uh, and he was also, uh, I guess, received his PhD from the University of Hamburg uh, in the 90s. Peter, one of the things I like to do before we get into the meat of the conversation, if you will, is I like to ask my guests, how did you get into your the field of meteorology or weather modeling? Was it something as a kid or something later in life? I, I guess it was uh, a more general uh, inclination to do something with uh, science to start with. Uh, and I did not start immediately to study atmospheric physics or meteorology. Um, I actually started with geophysics. Um, but I learned that the, the basic foundations are very similar. You, so you start with learning mathematical methods. Uh, you learn the basics of the physics, which are very generic across geosciences anyway. Uh, and then only like two years into my studies, I actually uh, moved over to atmospheric sciences. And that was because I really liked that you could see what you were doing. You know, you just looked at the sky and you could see cloud processes. You could see the effects of dynamics uh, and everything. And, uh, and, and that, that fascinated me because it was different to kind of earthquakes or volcanoes. I mean, we could see volcanoes, but kind of everything that happens below the crust, you can't really see. Uh, and that's what I liked about the atmosphere. It was more visual. Uh, and, uh, and that fascinated me, and I, I stuck with it ever, ever since. Yeah, I, I have to say I have a similar story. I was sitting here nodding as you said geophysics because when I went off to Florida State University, initially that was my interest as well, geophysics. But I didn't, uh, then ended up in the meteorology department. But certainly, as we both know, uh, our fields and this whole notion of Earth system science are quite related. I want to now pivot because 
you 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 work with the premier modeling group in the, in the world, frankly, ECMWF, and everyone knows about the Euro model. But before we get into the sort of details of that, can you give a brief overview of how we use observations and equations to generate model forecasts? Because I know, Peter, and I don't know if it's like this in Europe where you mainly matriculate. When I ask people here just casually, how do we make a weather forecast? How do we know what it's going to be five days from now here in Atlanta or in New York? I, I find that people just don't, uh, that are not sort of versed in our field, don't really understand that we're using models and observations. So uh, can you just give the public a little 101 on that process? Yeah, even though... It- <laughs> Even the term, the term model is not very clear to many people what it actually means. You know, when you, when you say model, what, what do you mean? You build something with, with sticks and, and paper, or, or what is it? You know, uh, and so numerical modeling is actually what we do, and it's nothing but trying to find a way how you can actually do calculations of the actual physical laws that happen in nature out there. You know, if you see, as I said earlier, you know, you have a cloud condensation and a cloud forming, or you have air coming in against the mountain and rising and creating some funny uh, features uh, in, in the lee of, the, of these mountains, or big weather systems that you can see in satellite pictures that, that uh, cause rain and precipitation and storms. So something like that uh, is what we try to represent in our models, and that's, that's no trivial task at all. And what I recently started to use as a term is actually, you know, if, and, and that probably appeals a lot to, to young people, is like this, this concept of like virtual reality. So if you if you take a simulation of ours that we run every day, and the same is done in the U.S. or in Japan or everywhere, so you you take uh, your your goggles, and what you see is actually what the model is doing. And then when you when you look through your goggles, you can actually see these processes. They're you know, poorly represented in the models, maybe, but it would look like as you look around yourself, look like the real atmosphere uh, forming clouds or or air coming against the mountain or a storm forming above you or, or around you. And the better the models are, the more realistic that picture looks and the more real your virtual reality would be. And I think then people start to understand it because they're familiar with the concept of computer games and computer games, they simulate virtual reality as well. Yeah, that's a great way to think about things, Peter, because I, I, I concur. We Even just as academics and scholars, even beyond, in disciplines, people can be confused by the term model. And I think for the public, they actually have this sort of mental model, if you will, pun intended, of what a model is. And so I, I, I like the way you put that. I often remind people that the atmosphere is a fluid. I mean, it's governed by fluid dynamics and thermodynamics equations uh, that we can simulate and model with equations in the same way that we're modeling river flow or water flowing through pipes, for example. So. Or how we optimize aircraft turbines or Formula One cars. You know, it's the same fluid dynamics. It's applied in a slightly different way. Uh, we have a bunch of additional processes, uh, like moist processes, and, and as we said, you know, land surface and, and water, water flowing along rivers and atmospheric composition of these things. But fundamentally, the underlying fluid dynamics is very similar. Yeah, and let, let's just kind of now circle back to what many of the listeners of this uh, Weather Geeks podcast are interested in. We're talking, by the way, with Dr. Peter Bauer, who's the ECMWF Deputy Director of Research and the head of the Scalability Program. Now, I mean, hands down, many people look to the euro as the pinnacle, the peak, the best in terms of uh, forecast models. Um, And I think you all know that, but how do you view this perspective that people have concerning the euro model? And do you strive to be the best? 
but it's kind of part of our agenda, you know. I mean, it's not it's not about competition as much as that, as that sounds, though. Uh, I think the original idea of the foundation of, of, of the center was not to be globally based or something, but to kind of funnel European expertise and resources into a single cause and say, look, uh, we can do this individually, uh, and people and, and centers and national med services in Europe still do that, but we can create uh, with joint efforts a single place in Europe where uh, we put our best experts uh, that rotate in and out, uh, we uh, allocate some, some serious resources together, and that allows us uh, through a collaborative effort uh, to create something that we individually can't do in terms of, of accuracy and reliability of forecasts. So that was the, the, the basic agenda uh, at the onset of, of this effort 40-plus uh, years ago, and it worked. You know, it, it turned out that actually uh, following this recipe and, and centralizing excellence and, and resources uh, helped and caused uh, us to be uh, number one since then in terms of global medium-range forecasting. Uh, and part of that success was also focus, uh, because we get often, often asked, you know, what, why is it that you're better than others? So apart from this, this centralization uh, argument, you can also say it's the focus. Uh, many Met services, uh, and NOAA is included, and German Weather Service as well, or Met Office, uh, they have very broad portfolios of, of the customers they need to serve and the technical equipment they need to run, including satellite programs and such. You know, the European Center was focused on medium-range prediction, global, nothing regional or limited area. It's global medium-range prediction, uh, and that covers the time range between day 3 and day 10, 15, let's say. Um, that has changed a bit over time, but that kind of focus helps because you have a single purpose. Yeah, that, some great insight from Peter Bauer. You know, here in the U.S., um, the European has a, seems a fan club. I mean, you you guys have quite the following, and certainly for for good reason. But uh, I should remind that most meteorologists and forecasters are looking at all of the models: the USGFS, uh, the European, the Canadian model, the UK Met Office off, uh, model, and, and many others. Uh, it's a collaborative process. But the reality is, when we start looking at the metrics that determine sort of skill, and there are a lot of sort of jargony type things that, you know, trust me, most listeners are not interested in, in terms of uh, anomaly height scores and all those types of things. One of the things that we know is that European model outperforms. And it's been said that the data assimilation approach and your integrated forecasting system or IFS, IFS are at the heart of why you generally have superior performance. First of all, talk in a sort of um, sort of to our listeners about what data assimilation is, and then what makes yours different than what we're doing here at the U.S. at the National Weather Service and other places. The differences are not very large, and in, in many cases, I mean, we get to that. You know, the differences are not very large by construction, but I think in the end, it's like the the experience, the time you've spent over years and decades to kind of optimize the system. But I think the fundamentals uh, we all agree on, just like for the models. You know, as we just said earlier, uh, we're all based on fluid dynamics, same equations, maybe slightly different ways of of putting it, uh, putting the equations on the computer. Same for data simulation, we use kind of the same algorithms. Uh, but have slightly different flavors of, uh, of running it. So data simulation is the way to fundamentally create your initial conditions because you need, for a good forecast, two basic ingredients. One is that you have a good model because the model is the only means you have to do a prediction to look into the future. Uh, 
weather in Washington in 10 days or how a tropical cyclone evolves in the Pacific Ocean in five days. Uh, so for this, you need a model that's your, your looking glass. Uh, and then you need to start that model somewhere. So you have to uh, have a very good idea of what the present conditions are worldwide uh, in three dimensions uh, across all the variables that are relevant to us, like surface pressure, temperature, moisture, clouds, you know, surface conditions, all that. Um, and these initial conditions, the starting point where you, the point you launch your model from is created by a data assimilation system. And the term data assimilation relates to that you're using a lot of observations for that, and that makes sense probably, because for, for gauging what the present state is, uh, you need to observe things. Um, and that you know, links to another great point of international collaboration, actually, which is the exchange of observations that relate to weather, the coordinated approach to design and run satellite programs across continents to observe uh, to make observations and share these observations in very short time periods, actually, across centers. Um, and then uh, once you have that data, and that needs to be with us within like three hours uh, between the satellite observing uh, sea ice over the Antarctic and us having that observ observation here in-house, you put these observations together to create a three-dimensional picture of the atmosphere. But since the observations don't cover everything everywhere at the same time, so they don't, they don't measure temperature and moisture and clouds everywhere all the time, we actually have to use the model as well to kind of fill in the gaps, loosely spoken. Uh, and how you do that is very complicated because you have to run the model back and forth and you use your observations to adjust the model where the model is quite uh, a bit wrong because the model isn't perfect, obviously, and the observations are not perfect either. So it's a bit of an optimization process between the information you get from the observations and the information you get from the model, and you adjust the model as much as you can so that they fit the observations as best as possible. And then you have found your best starting point for the predictions. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm talking with Dr. Peter Bauer of ECMWF. He's direct, Deputy Director of Research. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia and also a brief colleague of Peter when we overlapped at NASA. And we're talking about the European model, some of its modeling programs, forecasting, data assimilation, all kinds of things that are at the heart of your day-to-day -day weather forecast. And you heard Dr. Bauer talking about satellite data, satellite data and assimilation into the models. Now, European model really gained fame, at least in the U.S. world quarters, if you will, after Sandy, because I think there were many sort of studies and uh, sort of case studies that showed that the European model sniffed out Sandy's hard left turns well before the American model, I guess nine days before um, the, the actual turn. And so 
you've done data denial studies, or at least someone has, that showed that without those satellite data sets, uh, that forecast would not have been as accurate. And you mentioned this earlier. So am I correct, Peter, in noting that there is a strong partnership between the U.S., European space agencies, and other space agencies in terms of this data flow? Yes, indeed. Uh, and it's not just the space agencies, it's also uh, countries uh, maintaining ground-based networks of radars, of station networks, aircraft sharing observations uh, that are measured along them crossing the Atlantic, for example. So it's a, it's a, it's a global effort uh, coordinating uh, the observation of the atmosphere or the entire Earth, Earth system, actually, and sharing that information very quickly. But, you know, since you mentioned satellites, um, many billion U.S. dollars are spent in, in satellite programs uh, every year, globally accumulated. And so that needs to be well, uh, well coordinated between countries to make sure that's best value for money. Yeah, I agree. That's, I think, one of the ways that we actually overlapped is in a satellite mission called the Tropical Rainfall Measuring Mission and its subsequent follow-on, the Global Precipitation Measurement, or GPM, mission. Now, just uh, before we continue, I want to give you a little bit more about Peter Bauer. He's the German Helmholtz Society International Fellow Award winner, uh, Group Achievement Award to the GPM post-launch team from NASA. Uh, he has a certification of appreciation and recognition of outstanding contributions to the Thorpex program issued by the World Meteorological Organization and the Professor Dr. Vilho Weisler Award for the Development and Implementation of Instruments and Methods, uh, also issued by the World Meteorological Organization. So clearly we're talking with one of the world's top experts in this area. I want to mention something that you stated at the 2019 International Supercomputing Conference. You said... Exascale systems present a vision for weather and climate prediction. Can we meet those challenges? But then you posed a new question. You said weather and climate prediction presents a vision for exascale systems. Can we meet the challenges? What is what is what is exascale computing? Because I just have this sneaky feeling that people listening may not know. Maybe a few people do. What is exascale computing and why is it relevant to numerical weather prediction? So obviously we're running very complex model, you know, models and data simulation systems. We discussed earlier that uh, we're trying to cast uh, the physics that's happening out there into equations. You know, and this becomes more realistic. Uh, the, the better your resolution is, uh, the more complex you image and, 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 and represent the physical processes in your model, and the more observational data you use. And, you, you know, as you go, as you assimilate hundreds of millions of observations per day, uh, and you do this over billions of grid points, it is probably clear that this is a big computing task because users want the products, the, the forecasts in, in very short time scales. And for example, we need to complete our forecasts within an hour real time. Uh, that's for a 10-day forecast at like nine kilometer global resolution, 137 levels, and, and this kind of, you know, this kind of numbers. So it's a big computing task. Um, so traditionally, uh, all national med services or, or international med services like us um, have used very large computers for that. Uh, and the next game in town is, is, is exascale, and exascale relates uh, roughly to the number of 
computations uh, or calculations or floating point operations, so number operations, if you wish, that a, such a system could theoretically perform within a second. Uh, and exa relates to 10 to the power of 18, so it's a, it's a very big number. And you're, you're used to these kind of numbers, maybe if you look at your, the specs of your laptop uh, and the processes that sit on the lap, laptop, they have certain um, uh, speed uh, indications of how many gigahertz your processor operates at, and that's very similar in, in comparison. So exascale is a very big, uh, big number, and uh, the exascale requirement uh, pretty much comes from when we say, so today we run our system at 10 kilometers uh, on a computer of size X. Uh, if we would like to run the same system at one kilometer uh, to increase physical realism, uh, location detail, uh, assimilate a thousand times more observations maybe from more complicated and complex and many more satellites, uh, then we would need maybe a factor of a thousand more calculations per second to complete our forecast within that same hour. You know, and then if you extrapolate that, you pretty much, much end up at like exascale figures. And this is where that ter term comes from. And, and the statement uh, that, that you related to earlier is, you know, uh, you know as nice as that, that sounds and uh, as, as cleanly as you can work out such an ex uh, extrapolation, our models are simply not fit uh, to be run at these resolutions and at efficiencies that are, are even close to running on exascale systems. We can put them there, but they will run very inefficiently. And that's uh, a, a very new challenge that we have uh, and that we need to bridge within the next five or ten years because the requirements for more accurate uh, forecasts grow and grow. Yeah, I think that's right. We're talking with Peter Bauer from ECMWF. Now, one thing that I've noticed, and I've actually written about this recently in Forbes, the major modeling centers around the nation, you all, the United States, the UK Met Office, I think even the Canadians have announced massive budget allocations for increased computing power. And obviously, uh, that relates to things that you said about where we need uh, the resources and where things are going. I've always told people that to some degree, the skill of our weather forecast are directly related to computing power and the resources that we allocate to them. You all at the university, I'm sorry, at the university, I'm thinking of the University of Georgia, which is where I'm from, by the way, but you all at ECMWF have, it seems, ample budgets. I mean, it seems at times that there, there have needed to be events like a Sandy or a Hurricane Harvey or others for the U.S. to Congress and others to get our acts together and get these supplemental bills and fundings, whereas you're, you have a funding model that allows you to just continue, it seems, to, to buy the biggest and fastest computers. How do, how do, what is your perspective on how your budget model compares to the U.S. budget model or NOAA's where um, I think NOAA at least has to allocate to the Weather Service some supercomputers, uh, satellites, radar, and other things. Um, can you speak about the differences in how those models are, or funding models at least, are aligned? Uh, yeah. I think this is not presented quite right. You know, I don't think we have uh, unlimited budgets. I think we work actually on a quite lean budget. Um, but I think what helps us to a certain degree is that focus that I mentioned earlier. Uh, so we, our focus uh, is on medium-range global predictions, so we don't have to quite spread as widely as other agencies have to do. But I would claim, actually, that what we use for our daily forecasts, you know, the, the forecast that created the Sandy forecast was probably run on a similar 
HPC allocation in terms of you know how many processes you run that thing on uh, to, to complete in an hour is, 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 is been very similar to what other forecasting systems run on because that's how much it costs you know um, so it's a bit more complicated the story it's, it's, I don't think you can translate the success of each EF so unidirectionally onto HPC and the HPC budget itself. I think the message needs to be slightly more complex. Uh, I think one advantage that we have and that we built in purposefully in our HPC budget is that we want to allocate a significant amount of resources for research. So if we buy a machine and we, we produce a procurement, for us it's very important that about half of that capacity of the entire system is allocated for research. So I think this is part of our recipe for, for making sure that uh, the researchers that work here can actually play with the operational configuration, add that little changes, test them out within a reasonable amount of time. So they have enough turnover to test and verify what they're doing. I think this is important. The operational allocation, so that's the, you know, the, the sandy forecast allocation, uh, that stuff is only 25% of the total capacity. And then we have the missing 25, which is allocated to our member states. Don't, don't forget, we're a member state organization, uh, and uh, we allocate uh, some of the HPC budget to them as well. So while we're focused, uh, we have a specific distribution of HPC resources, but I would actually claim that today, for sure, uh, the, the major national services like the US, so NOAA, or Met Office, or DWD in Germany recently, uh, have pretty similar uh, HPC systems as a whole and probably very similar allocations to the specific forecast suite that produces data simulation for the initial conditions and the forecast themselves. So I think we're pretty much on par there. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Peter Bauer of ECMWF. And we're talking about the Euro model and how ECMWF does its business as compared to, say, the National Weather Service or NOAA. And so based on one of the things that I'm learning from Dr. Bauer's remarks is, it's not likely that you're going to see the ECMWF, for example, develop an, an HRRR model, which is the high-resolution model that NOAA runs. Uh, you have a very specific focus, and you, uh, I guess the sort of old adage, find your expertise and do it well. And that's what you all do uh, in your sort of focus. And with that, uh, I think you clarify for many people that you don't have unlimited budgets. You just are very strategic and sort of uh, optimize how you utilize that budget. Um, I want to kind of pivot now to your view of of the world. I mean, you, you all are upgrading and continuing to upgrade. From your vantage point as the director, deputy director of the research department, what's 
next for you? What are your biggest challenges going forward to continue to improve weather forecasts? And also, I'm interested in your thoughts, Peter, on where the limit is. I mean, how far can we get out with credible forecasts and with resolution? Because I saw some recent work out of Penn State by, I think, uh, the late Fuqin Zhang and his group uh, that kind of harks back to the old Lorenz and chaos theory that there are these natural limits and how far we can go. So I want to get your thoughts on that. But also, what are your big challenges with the Euro model and ECMWF going forward? I think in the the day-to-day business, we we have the same challenges as everybody else. You know, we try to improve resolution, of course, uh, and just describe uh, a realistic uh, view of uh, how physical processes uh, are operating out there between now and day 10, day 15, or up to seasons even. Uh, So that's the same. And uh, I think we're investing uh, into... um, more complexity of the Earth system at the same time. So we want to uh, couple atmospheres with oceans and land surfaces and sea ice and atmospheric composition because all these processes uh, interact with weather. Uh, and I think increasingly we have recognized that uh, in the past five or ten years, I'd say. And pretty much today, most of the operational global systems run coupled Earth system models, not as coupled and complex as climate models are, but still in the sense that they couple, they couple at least the physical space uh, of, the, of the Earth system. And that has shown to pr- produce uh, great uh, improvements, certainly in the medium range, but also in the extended range. And with extended range, I mean forecasts into uh, the months or even seasons uh, of El Nino, for example, you see great benefits of, of that. So these challenges are very similar to everybody. And it sounds maybe trivial saying that, you know, that you, that you add aerosols uh, in, or interactive aerosols like dust particles in your atmosphere and you get better forecasts. But all these processes interplay at different scales on different time scales. So some processes are fast, faster than others. Some uh, are therefore limited by uh, your time stepping or your spatial resolution or how aerosols interact with clouds, for example, or radiation. So it's a very complex interactive and highly tuned system. So you can't just add components and you see an immediate benefit. Uh, it's it's, it's a, lot of, a lot of scientific, it takes a lot of scientific research to actually get the answer right across uh, all scales globally and we verify globally every day. So that's that's like the incremental challenge. If you're asking for uh, like a, a big time challenge, I would come back to the computing actually. You know, we talked about big numbers and budgets and I mean one figure uh, is important to keep in mind and we said exaflop or exascale is is the scale to reach uh, for realizing high resolution simulations for example but right now and that is is going to get worse at exascale so if we extrapolate into the future the efficiency of our global codes is only five percent on these systems so you, we only use five percent of the calculation rate of these uh, computing systems and that's and that's because you know, we're running so many complex uh, calculations and data communications between processes and, you know, um, that we just can't optimize our system with the current programming approach and the way, the, the way we map our physics prob- problem onto the computer. And so upping that number is really important for us to increase our efficiency and uh, have a better return on the investment we make in HPC in the first place. And this 
translates in, in, in a center like ours, but the same is true everywhere, into really, really radical reformulations of our computer codes for future architectures uh, of processes as, as well. So in the end, ideally, you want to use, <laughs> use an architecture like, like you and I have on our iPhones, for example. You know, We have a, a general purpose uh, processor that you do your emails with. Uh, you want to have a, a GPU you do your image processing with, and you want to have a little AI processor that you, that, uh, you can play with uh, if, if you have uh, the AI apps for that. So a very specialized configuration of processing technology, and ideally your model and data simulation system is able to use that. And to do that for now and for the future is a huge challenge for, for us, but it will be the key to unleash you know, the, the gains we can expect from resolution uh, and model complexity. We're coming to almost an end of the podcast. It has been an amazing discussion with my colleague, Dr. Peter Bauer. A couple of more questions I want to get at you while I have you on the line. We're doing this sort of transatlantic. I know Peter's sitting somewhere. Are you in Reading right now? Yes, I'm in Reading. Yes. The weather's very poorly. <laughs> yeah, I remember visiting Reading a few years ago at the European Meteorological Society meeting when I was um, president of AMS. So I definitely, quite nice weather when I was there. But speaking of, I mean, and by the way, ECMW is based in Reading, but you, you said something earlier that prompted a question because you mentioned that uh, you are a member state organization. How's Brexit at all going to impact your operations, or is it? Uh, it's how important the member states are for operations. No, I said how is Brexit going to oh, Brexit, yeah, how, how is it going to uh, impact the European or ECMWF operations, or will it? We always give a twofold answer. Uh, the uh, number one is formally it doesn't because we're an independent European organization, so all member states stay as they are, then that's not affected by Brexit, and the UK stays a member state of ours. But we have indirect effects, of course. You know, we're located, located in, in the UK, so if you're, if you're trying to hire a scientist or computational scientist for something, people may not feel inclined right now to apply for a position here if they don't know if their wives can work, if their children can go to school and these things. So we have uh, that aspect. The other is... Um, uh, we are involved in a lot of collaborative research in Europe, a lot of which is funded by the European, uh, European Commission. Um, and uh, to a certain extent, that may become a problem uh, because it's difficult to host European Commission-funded projects outside the European Union. So these are the two, the two negative effects that we see right now. So, you know, there's a bit of time to deal with it, but it's clearly something that affects us indirectly, uh, but formally it doesn't. But certainly it sounds like there will be no degradation or, or problems with the, the, the model and the forecast, which is quite good for all of us. Because as, I, uh, hoping, yeah. as I remind everyone that we all look at our, all the models. Uh, I want to draw to a close, just kind of circling back to your role as deputy director of the research division. Um, Tell us about sort of what you do in that role, what ECMW's 10-year strategy is, and what the scalability program is, and then we'll draw it to a close. Yeah, I think it all, it, it, it's pretty much what we, what we discussed. You know, as my role as a deputy director is that I complement the director of research. The director of research is like more in charge of the day-to-day formulation and, and guidance uh, for research at the center. We have about 100 scientists here working in the research department across a few sections. I complement that uh, with the computational aspects, uh, and we 
the, the two of us kind of design and discuss uh, the research strategy for the next 10 years. We're actually doing this right now because we're formulating our next 10-year strategy, and computational science will play an important role in that. Um, so that's uh, that's what I do. And the computation, as I said, you know, it's, uh, the computing problem is a, is a very large uh, challenge for us. Uh, I spoke about unleashing the you know the powers of models and data simulation systems to come. Um, and while uh, and as, as we recognize that uh, already, like uh, seven years ago, I'd say now. Uh, we funded what we call the scalability program, actually, uh, to run a project across the individual departments and groups that we have here, so across research, forecast department, computing department, and so forth, to kind of coordinate the work that's needed and the developments that are needed to kind of overcome this threshold of 5% efficiency, how we deal with data, uh, petabytes, uh, exabytes of data in the future, how we get our, our member states involved in that and actually how we can reach out and, and draw in expertise that we don't even have if we, at ECWF uh, in terms of computational science. And, and there I would emphasize um, also the links with the U.S. Uh, in the U.S. you have very large uh, Department of Energy programs on exascale computing, uh, but also exascale computing aimed at weather and climate prediction. Uh, and there's joint efforts there. So, you know, just like the, the satellite collaboration that we mentioned earlier, um, along Aside that, we have very good international collaboration uh, on the computing uh, issue as well. And I think this is really good. And that is where we're going to have to end it. But before we get out of here, it is that time of the podcast. It's time for our Geek of the Week. Our Geek of the Week this week is Skywarn spotter Drake Caldwell. Drake is constantly posting his weather reports on Twitter and also does his part for the community by helping investigate storm damage in the area. That can be super helpful to the National Weather Service forecaster so thank you so much Drake he's most fascinated by hurricanes but the weather event he remembers most was a tornado that traveled right by his house yikes uh, Drake also loves to help out with making the local forecast and so far he feels like he's done a pretty good job maybe there's a future in you for meteorology Drake thanks for all of your hard work as a skyworn spotter and congratulations on being this week's geek of the week now if you know someone that would like to be the geek of the week or you'd like to nominate or Hey, nominate yourself. Check out our social media pages on Twitter and Facebook. Peter, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Weather Geeks podcast. It's been great. Thanks, Marshall, for the opportunity. That was really enjoyable. Yeah, really. I think hopefully everyone has a better appreciation of the Euro model and how you do your business and what's to come. And this has been Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. We'll see you next time on Weather Geeks. Weather Geeks.